Hello and welcome to episode 457 of Fergo on the Free. I'm the bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. Join me as always is the glorious League Freak. You can also find on Twitter at League Freak. How you going there, mate? Hello, friend. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. What are your thoughts on the World Cup so far? Ah, it's fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a chore. It's a real chore. Uh, just as a bit of background, the the only brief thing we mentioned before it was uh, Freaky saying, I don't think I can be positive about this, but I'll try. And I thought, I'm putting, I'm nipping that in the bud real fucking fast. <laughs> <laughs> Where we start, I mean, from the uh, terrible crowds, which we talked about in the last podcast. Hey, to... been, look, the cricket's been good. I, I saw England almost, one of the England um, players there almost got 100. What 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 are you I'm talking about? Confused. Uh, the score, the score lines, isn't it? One, one English guy got, got, got 94, was, was it? Was it Greece was four for 94? England was 94 for four. I can't remember. I'd... It's a shit joke about cricket scores in footy. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll move I say, on. I, say, I, I, care, I care even less about the 2020 World Cup. Hey? Like, if you... I didn't even know it was on. I know. It's, who gives a fuck about 2020 cricket? Um, but, yeah, it, look, the, the score lines have been... Abysmally one-sided, um, you know. There's just no good games of football. The, the teams that are scoring big aren't even. It's not like you're watching them going, man. They're playing some Harlem Globetrotter type football. They're just doing basics and and putting up, you know, Tonga beat Cook Islands ninety-two to ten. Yeah, it's, um, it's training drills. Yeah, it really is. And we, we have somehow turned. The, what should be the dual crown in International Rugby League into a bunch of training runs. Yes, and that made me think, right, what, what is the World Cup supposed to be? Is it, The World Cup is not supposed to be... Um, it's not supposed to be training. It's not supposed to be a way for you to get better. It's supposed to work out who the best team in the world is. And we've spent nearly a month now not doing any of that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I Call me crazy, but I don't think that being beaten by 80 points helps you get better. I, I think that, you know, playing regular internationals obviously helps you get better and playing varied opposition helps you get better. But when you're standing under your goal, goal line for, you know, an hour of the match you're not getting better doing that. Um, I also think that when you look at, you know, between that, the qualification, uh, the uh, the eligibility rules, sorry, and I, I just question what do we want out of the World Cup? Because the World Cup doesn't start until this week, really. So what have we been doing this whole time? Yes, yeah, it feels a bit like... Um... Yeah, and the, the Soccer World Cup, they go through that whole qualification process. Yeah. The group stage they have at the end is the last few teams before the finals. And I think that's what Rugby League thinks they're doing with this World Cup. Mm. But this, these three rounds that they've had should have been part of the, um, you know, qualification thing. And we just come straight into a knockout tournament. Well, that's what I was thinking. What if this World Cup was a knockout tournament? Furthermore, I mean, if you made a knockout tournament and you worked just from the finals onwards, you could probably have a friendlier draw mm. 
for those teams that are just getting absolutely pounded these last two, three weeks. So yeah. they're, they're not taking too much of them. Yeah. It's a bit of a tricky one. See, I've, I know, um, I know the guy who's managing the Greece team. I've mm-hmm. worked with him an awful lot. Um, and he is, look, understandably, 100%, and as are all the coaches and the players, unbelievably proud of what they've managed to do with Greek Rugby League there. And for, for the game to only be made legal in Greece, literally days before the World Cup started, that they'd managed to somehow qualify for. Mm. Yeah, that whole thing is an absolute just phenomenal story. Of course they're fucking proud. Yeah. How do we how do we let them enjoy that that moment of absolute massive pride? We put them on the field and we fuck them ninety four to two or whatever it is. You know, it's yeah. just can't we do something to sort of promote them and and help them out and say, look, this is what they've done, and you know, have a bit of a celebration. I'm not saying let them win, but I'm saying don't don't let them go through all of that trials and tribulation for years to turn up to a World Cup, which they may not even get back to. And if they mm. do get back there, it's going to be more of this again. Mm. But they get onto the big stage, they're finally there, and then they just get fucking smashed. I don't see the point in that. I'm, it's going to happen because there's only there's only like five, six teams that are genuinely at a similar sort of level nationwide, uh, you know, across the whole globe. Yeah. There's going to be lopsided scores. But... If we keep, it, it seems very British. If we keep getting these teams coming up from the division below to bring them up and then flog the fuck out of them and then send them back again, who's that helping? Yeah, no one. And, and <clears throat> you know, I've I, I've seen some people trying to draw parallels between um, some of these European nations and the likes of Samoa and Tonga and, and Fiji and the like. And, you know, for the most part, the way that those nations got better wasn't through heaps of playing heaps of international rugby league and getting thrashed. It was through player development at club level. And they get to a threshold where they've got a, a, a squad of professional players that are playing in a professional rugby league competition. That's how these teams got better. It yeah. wasn't through playing heaps of international footy and getting flogged. Now, I'm not saying that we don't play international football. I, I'm saying, that, like, I, I think the more international football, the better. Absolutely. And, and it helps, you know, it helps domestic players, obviously, when they get they get their call-ups and they're very proud and, and that's fantastic. And, you know, a, a bloke that plays rugby league in Greece is no less important than a bloke that plays rugby league than Nathan Cleary in terms yeah, of exactly. how important a rugby league player is to the game. Um, you know, but I, I do think that if this is our World Cup and this is what we're saying is the pinnacle of international rugby league, and as rugby league fans, it is just it, like the best I can call it is a chore to watch these games, then we're doing something wrong. And if we don't look at what we're doing right now and say maybe there's a better way to do this, then we're just setting ourselves up for failure. Because if we think that this is the perfect way to do it, we're wrong. (laughs) We're just wrong. Well, I mean, we we can just go through the last several World Cups and see a lot of lopsided scorelines. 
surely if we're doing the same method an awful lot of times and you'd, you'd expect after a while that the quality of the lesser teams is going to improve, increase mm. by a faster rate than those at the absolute top. Those, those at the absolute top are already at their absolute peak. The difference between peak players in, in the NRL in 2000 and in 2022 is not that much compared to the best players in Greece in 2000 and the best players in Greece in 2022, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I understand what it's you a, mean. It's a chasm difference. So well, yeah. you'd expect that those big score lines, while they'll still be there, they won't be 94 to 2. They might be 50 to 2. And I know that's still a big score line, but it's half as bad. And as you go on through the years, they get shorter and shorter. Just think, in the 80s and early 90s, Papua New Guinea was that team getting smashed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they've been on that trajectory where 20, 30 years later, and yeah, it's a long time, but they're now one of the teams that's one of the, the big hitters in the World Cup. But what was it that made that happen? Was it playing international rugby league and getting flogged? Or was it the fact that more of their players come into the NRL and the, and the lower grades in Australia... And then the PNG Hunters come into the Queensland Cup. PNGs are very, um, this is my view, very unique compared to nearly all the other countries in the sense that um, their, their home domestic competi- uh, competition is uniquely different to the NRL and yeah. to the Super League. Mm-hmm. Um, they play their own style and most of their squad that they've brought over are from that domesticated competition. They mm. do have players from the NRL to go in there. Mm. Um, but I think for all of the Pacific Islands, the thing that opened it up was when the NRL, or the was the ARL at the time, opened the door up to having the Auckland Warriors in the competition. 100%. And it allowed all of those Pacific nations to play then. They had a pathway to Auckland, mm-hmm. which then was the pathway into Sydney. Because mm-hmm. we we've always had... Um, Islanders and, and Kiwis and, and um, Maori players in the in the game, but not not even close to the extent that we have them now. Mm. And they have improved the game uh, immensely by having them around. So yeah. their involvement has improved the game. Um, the coaching methods and the quality of the game here has improved them in turn, and that means that. The, you know, those tides have rise, they've made all the boats rise at the same rate. And now all of a sudden you've got all the Pacific Islands on a very similar level. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and, and P&G is, they were separate to all of that, but they have, they've played enough international footy against them and had enough players coming into the NRL. And the good thing about the P&G players is the, the coaches in the NRL and the administrators haven't tried to coach out what they've learned from the domesticated level. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. That's why they've got them here. So we still want that. We're just going to add a little few touches to the, you know, increase your ball skills and your skill set and stuff like that. But we don't want to lose that intensity that they've got. And so they don't take it away from them, which has been so good for Papua New Guinea Rugby League. And I think it's come along in leaps and bounds, especially in the last um, five to ten years. It's increased so much in quality. Yeah. But the problem we've got is when you go over to Europe is – English Rugby League has been, skill-wise, far more stagnant in the skill level increase, especially over the last 20 years. You know, Well, it's gone where, back. Yeah. And so all the other nations that have been, you know, 
Like, like we've got a lot of nations using the NRL as a vehicle to get better. All of the nations that are relying on the Super League, Championship League One to get better are not. Hmm. They're just stagnant. So it just means that if if we were to have a European-based World Cup only, and we had one of those every two years, you'd find that England would be flogging everyone, but everybody else would be catching up until they all got to the point where they can't, they won't go any further. Think France. Okay, France has got to that point, and there's just there's no more room to move. They've hit their they've hit their peak as far as skill set and qualities goes. They've got to do something different to break out of that mold. And yeah. you touched on in the last episode, they need to start playing more games in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, it doesn't get that exposure. Yeah, and it's not even about... Um, they don't even have to come to the NRL. Go and play games against Papua New Guinea or something like that. Just play something different to what you play every week. Yeah. It, it because... changes your skill set, it changes your approach, and there could be enough to give you that edge over England that you start beating them. England's then got to change what they're doing. You know, it's... I don't think England will ever change what they do because they've been getting flogged by Australia for forever. And then they say, well, we've got to, we've got to beat Australia the England way. I think like the last time they won the England way, it was in black and white fucking TV era. <laughs> that is true. But the thing is, I think after decades of being pounded by Australia, they've just gone, you know what, let's just accept that they're better than us. But if France came out and started beating them on a regular basis now, after France went through the doldrums in the 70s and just you know, just slummed their way through the 80s and 90s. They're on, a, they're on an improve now, but they're still not competitive with England to the point where they're going to beat them every now and then. But if France started to beat England, then England's going to go, which top-tier nation can we look at that we can play regularly to beat? And they're going, it's not, like, it's too much of a battle. We have to just start getting better. There will be, there will come a point. There's a team out there, and I think it's France. If France starts beating England, England will start thinking we need to start getting better at this. Uh, remember have... during the the um, <laughs> the 1997 uh, World Club Challenge. I remember you telling me about how they went into this big review after the World Club Challenge because all the English teams were getting absolutely hammered. And what they do? They basically just went, "This is the way it is now. Australia's just better than us." I went, "Don't try and fix it." <laughs> Yeah. Tip your shit. Yeah, the, the, the 97 World Club Challenge was, uh, they didn't expect that. And when that happened, uh, it was weird. It was a weird moment for them and because it was so comprehensive. And I think since then they've tried to pretend that it didn't happen, you know, and that they're not, they're not getting worse. And I, I, look, I said on Twitter, it's probably a month or so ago now, maybe a little bit longer that, because I saw somebody saying that the current St. Helens team is at the best ever because they've won like four titles in a row. And I, I listed five St. Helens teams just in the Super League era that would flog this current team. Um, it's, you know, Super League's going backwards. And there's no doubt about that. Um, I think you, the case that British Rugby League in general is going backwards is really easy to make. You just... You know, you could look at this World Cup and say, well, they beat, you know, Samoa. Samoa were absolutely pathetic in that first game. But uh, the last time Great Britain did a tour down in the Southern Hemisphere, they didn't win a game. And they lost a lot of games to teams that they would never have thought they were going to lose to. And so I, I just think that European Rugby League, I mean, 
if if they're looking at this World Cup and you know, great, they're participating, fantastic, but you know that most of the wins that European teams have got at this World Cup are against other shitty European teams. Yeah. And the only two teams, I, I believe, with I think it was what Ireland beat Jamaica, and um, England beating Samoa, they're the only games that they've won against non-European opponents. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, their win-loss record is abysmal, and that's even taking into account uh, England winning all of their games. So, I believe there should be less European teams at the World Cup next time around. And I think that the statistics back that up. Um, and I think that when you look at, you know, I look, I look this up during the week because I'm watching these these European teams get absolutely flogged. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if we're going to see teams get flogged like this, we might as well bring a team from, you know, the Asian continent and a team from the African continent as well. Because, you know, they'll come in, they'll get flogged too, but, you know, you're letting new markets possibly have an interest in the Rugby League World Cup. And it's more than half of human population is between those those two continents. And the pushback I got, not by many people, but the pushback I got was pretty intense. And yeah. it was based on feelings rather than I know. obvious. I think so. I think for English rugby league fans, and I'm saying this um, with all sincerity and honesty as possible, and that is they've been watching their game decline for a long time. Mm. And when they get to a World Cup and they see their national side putting 90 points on a team, it gives them a little bit of happiness and a bit of hope. And they kind of don't want to change that because it gives them something to look forward to. And I think that's kind of why they want to stick with the current system. Because every four years, they can watch their team do them proud for a little bit against, you know, a country country that's got a population smaller than Bradford. Well, you know, one of the things that I... When I said we need less European teams, right... The thing that kept on getting pushed to me was, well, why don't you, you don't want there to be as much rugby league being played? It's like I never said that. And then it's like, why do you hate European teams? I said I didn't never said that either. I just said they they can't play rugby league for shit. I don't hate them. I'm just saying fact. I'm looking at the scoreboard. Yeah. And you know, then it was like, well, how how much more is the World Cup going to get out of putting in a team from Africa and Asia? that is going to get absolutely smashed themselves. And it's like, well, the European team's getting smashed. And then it was like, well, who's going to turn up to watch those teams get smashed? And I'm looking at the TV and I'm thinking, no, it's fucking turning up to this World Cup right now. Yeah. You know, you could drive from Scotland and Wales and get on. You can even put your car on a ferry and come over from Ireland. No one's going to these fucking games, Andrew, you know? That's right. So it's not like we're going to affect attendance. And if we get a tiny, tiny little percentage of the Asian audience or the African audience to tune in. Like or the American audience. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking at it saying, if we're going to flog teams, let's flog them from all around the world instead yeah. of most of them being European. I'm trying, to do it for some, I'm trying to do it for some corporate purpose. Exactly. Exactly. Um, incredible, incredible mental gymnastics I've ran into as to why that can't happen. Amazing stuff, you know. 
uh, people talking. I had this one person that keeps on saying the Europe European money is more important than money from anywhere else. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? Money's money, man. Yeah. Well, like, no, mate. There's important money, and then there's just unimportant money. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, that sounds no, apparently apparently important money. It's worth more. You can buy more stuff with important money. Yeah, if you, like, have, like when have, I sit down at home, mate, and I've got my two twenty dollar notes, I look at the more important one, and I say, you do know. As much as your value is exactly the same as the other one, because you're more important, I'm going to use you to buy something more expensive because I know I can afford it because you're more important. I know, right? That's how it works. It's it's a very weird argument. Very, very weird argument. Um, I've, I got told they don't play rugby league in Africa or Asia. Oh, they do? Yeah, they do. Like, they just do, you know? They've just finished their, what is it, third um, MEA Cup, which is the Middle East Middle Eastern Africa Cup. Mm-hmm. I know it's only four teams playing, but they've been playing it for a few years now. And they're test matches. They're official. Uh, that's Cameroon. Um, got to remember now because they, they, the number of teams increases every every time they play it around now. Yeah. Well, look, they've got rugby league in Ghana. They've got rugby league yep. in Nigeria. So there's Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, and um, Kenya. Yes, I've heard about Kenya Kenyan rugby league. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they they played their MEA Cup, which was uh, September October, and Ga- Nigeria beat Ghana thirty to four in the final. Uh, yeah. And just just so um, people know, Aaron Moore, uh, referee, I think from England, he refereed all four games in that little that little tournament. The first two games were both played on the same day. And the second two games, one was the playoff for third, and the other one was the final. Also played on on um, the same day, uh, almost a week later. He did back to back games. Nice, he did well. Give that bloke some fucking credit, please, somebody. Yeah. Referees um, got a lot of shit, but you, they don't get credit when they do back to back games like that in Africa. Mm. It's not like it's some nice, cool place. <laughs> it's fucking hot. So I want to give credit to Aaron Moore. Well done, man. And they've but, got uh, yeah, they've been playing the MEA championships for quite a few years now. Yeah, we've we've got teams in Asia like we've we've talked about the Philippines rugby league before. Yeah, Thailand's uh, got a team. India's just starting their own team up as well. Um, Japan starting to get back on the horse again. Mm-hmm. We can get teams out there. That's not a problem. I'm yeah, we've got the Americas. They've gotten they're getting more and more teams. Brazil, South America's got a few. Yeah, and like if we're going to have a World Cup where teams are getting absolutely flogged, how about we bring more of the world in? And look, can you expand the World Cup? Please don't. Please don't expand the World Cup. How well? How about this? I know I'm not saying this as the as the full World Cup thing, but it could be televised separately. You have your America's one, right? You get to the end there, you get an America's, um, you know, American section champion. That mm-hmm. that team, that one team goes through the World Cup. Then you'll go to an Asian one, same thing. You go to a European one. You can do a British Isles one if you want. Um, you do an Africa one. Then you can have a Pacific one, right? And you get you you sort it out. If you've got to have a few more in like the Pacific Island area and the England area to try and get the right number of teams, go for it. But your your, your sole aim should be to get say eight teams, and just your World Cup is those eight teams. They can play each other once if you want and just have a playoff between the top two teams at the top of the ladder at the end. Boom, there's your World Cup. You're still going to get a fair few games in. 
but it's going to be more fair because everyone's going to play each other once. You know, and you're going to have less teams who don't, you know, who aren't at the same level turning up and getting flogged all the time. You might only have two or three of them. But there's got to be a way that we can work it so that we can we can get a, a better system because one thing I thought was really cool was the last Cricket World Cup, which mm-hmm. is during just is it during COVID. And they, they changed it so instead of having pools, everyone played each other once. Mm-hmm. And it was a real – I found that to be a very interesting system and I actually thought it worked pretty well because the two teams that got to the final – they earned that right. They didn't just sit there and flog a few teams they were lucky to be drawn against. They had to be better than every other team there to get there. Yeah. And I think that's a fairer system. But it, it can't work with a ton of teams. You can only have a maximum of eight teams. That way everyone's team's playing seven games, and then you have a final. Yeah. It's a lot of games to play, a lot of footy games to play, though. It is, it is. So, But I'm saying eight would be your maximum. You can cut it down to six or five if you need to, mm. but um, that would be your maximum that you'd have. I, ju- I just think that... You've got to change it, as you said. At this Look, at this point, I wouldn't care if they did a just a make it a one big knockout competition, you know. At least that way, if we're going to see some floggings, they're going to be early on, and we know the matches are going to get better and better as the competition goes on. Um, well, let's, well, I mean, let's say, let, let's, let's do a proper, legit Mortal Kombat system. You've got four years to play it, okay? And it starts with team rank number, I don't know how many they got let's say 50. Team number 50 plays number 49. The winner plays 48. The winner plays 47. And we keep going until in the last year, we've got the number one ranked team playing against the team that, you know, has won the last game. That's your World Cup final. We could do that. You know, get And to... then someone gets murdered at the end. Yeah, then we kill someone. Then we take someone's <laughs> fucking spine and call them out. <laughs> Sign me up. Um, yeah, look, it, anything is going to be better than what we've got now because what we've got now, if a like I'm a diehard rugby league fan and I I I started getting up for these games at all hours. I augmented when I was sleeping for this World Cup. People that are there in England and not going to it. Um. You know, and yeah, the, the ticket prices are outrageous, but they're still not. Go- they're choosing not to go to it. Um, if if rugby league people are saying this is this is not good, I'm not going to take this in. Then what are we doing it for? You know, if we're doing it just for the pure sporting aspect of having a World Cup, can we do it better? I really do. I think that we could do it better. Even if you said it was a, I don't know, if you you. Go for the 16-team tour. I just think a 16-team tournament, let's just have one straight knockout competition. It would have far more interest. Every game's an elimination game. Um, you know how many teams you're going to have playing through every single week. It's going to be really easy to to look at and, and, and know the draw of it and know who will end up where and why. Um, I, I just think this idea of group stages where None of these – the group stages haven't really mattered. You know, has the, have the group stages chucked up anybody that we're looking at going into the quarterfinal saying, wow, I didn't expect them to be there? No. No, I think – I think, to be honest, the only way you're going to get this whole thing to work um, is you're going to have to have regional comps. And the problem you get with that is um, the Pacific – 
like a Pacific Cup with all the Pacific Islands playing it would be deemed the pinnacle of International Rugby League. Yeah. Which would not sit well with, you know, the International Rugby League, which has got a very strong European base to it. Um, I, have, I have a tweet that I need to tell you about. So this tweet is by t- the Honourable, because he puts it in his title. The Right Honourable. Yeah, Uh, Tony Grant, who is the head of the International Rugby League, and he posted this in response to an article about the Cook Islands um, who had lost, what was it, 92 points to 10 to Tonga in their last game. Mm. Uh, And this is his tweet. Cook Islands is the greatest next untapped International Rugby League nation to explode, along with Wales Rugby League, in my opinion. Green shoots everywhere committed to seeing this materialise. Wales are the Tonga of Northern Hemisphere, a sleeping giant ready to be woken. Now, I thought about that a lot. And I wonder what metric he used to get to that point. Because it's not results. It's not players in the top level. It's not that they... Uh, there's a nation that they've been willing to support a Super League club that we saw that far recently. So what measure is he using? I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, they're, they're worse than they've been in a long, long time. Like, they're getting worse every World Cup. How is that getting... How is that untapped potential? Where is it? I don't think any official should be saying any country that's currently in the World Cup is an untapped, has untapped potential. Sure, if they've made the World Cup, we should be tapping into that shit by now. I would agree. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that admitting that they've done nothing so far to help them out? You would think so. You would think so. But I just, I look at Wales and people are like, oh, you're getting on Wales' case again. Look, I heard people this week saying to me how great Wales was, and I'm watching the results, and I'm like, well, no, that's not true. Um, that they, they just need so, a few more World Cups, and they'll they'll be good eventually. And it's like, well, how many more World Cups? You know. Well, how many? Um, well, I was going to say, how many has Wales and Ireland and Scotland had? It's that plus one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's always the next one they're going to be half decent in. Never happens. That's right. And, the, and then it's like. Well, they're developing players. It's like, really? Their best player is fucking born in New Zealand. Um, and I, and then the other one is like, well, you know, they're doing pretty good considering they lose all of their best athletes to soccer and rugby union. And I'm like, well, they're not good at soccer and they're not really that good at rugby union either. So what the fuck are they doing? Maybe they're untapped darts players. Who knows? Who knows? Like, Untaps. what are we doing? And Scotland is just getting worse. And we're supposed to not talk about it for some reason. And, like, I, when I look at the World Cup, I don't, I don't have any nations that are special for me, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I've got a child just born for no reason. Just wait. Give him a second or two. Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's what I hear every time I tweet about <laughs> European rugby league teams. I just get that sort of response on Twitter. That's just, 
someone from English Rugby League. Yeah, yeah. What did you say to him? The NRL's better. Pacific Islands are better than anyone that's running anything in Europe. Well, the, the funny one I always hear from them is like, oh, well, if you just think the NRL is the be-all and end-all, yeah. I have to point out that most of the best players that they're watching at this World Cup are from the NRL, and then they don't reply back to that. <laughs> you just should reply with, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, like, I just don't know why we're spending so much money in places like Scotland, Wales, and Ireland where we're getting zero return. Well, because it's more important to have rugby league in Scotland, Ireland, and Wales than it is in, say, you know, these weird places like Canada. I know, that's what they... Canada? (laughs) He's not not interested in Canada. I mean, this is basically our... um, yeah, international rugby league expert we've got here now. Yeah, pretty much. A spokesperson, even. He talks more sense than some of the people that have sent me tweets over the last week. I can tell you that much. <laughs> He's fine. Sometimes you just got to give him a cuddle and tell him everything will be all right. Yeah, yeah. Just like English rugby league. Ah, fuck him. <laughs> but, yeah, look, I'm just, I'm over pretending that we're supposed to have this special place in our heart for these fucking shit teams that have always been shit and will always be shit and that there's some special elixir in the air that they're just waiting to suck on, you know? That's what it is. They're going to get better, mate. Just wait. Oh, you just got to give them more time. They just need more time. It's like Wales played in the very first rugby league international ever. How much more fucking time do they need? Two more years. Two more years. It's ridiculous. Edit point. How about that edit point? That was a smooth one. Solid. No one would even know that there was a, there was like three and a half days where nothing happened there. I know. I know. It was good. It was very good. Um, yeah, so in closing, we don't need Wales, Ireland or Scotland. I've actually heard a lot of people saying that Great Britain should come back. Um, I, I can't see any reason why not. You know, might as well. Yeah, look, if if we need to have, I'm I'm okay with England being there, but the only reason why I'd separate them is if Wales and or Scotland and or Ireland can prove that they can be competitive with England mm-hmm. in order for them to separate. Um, but at this stage, I've not seen at any point where um, Great Britain needed to be separated from the rest of those nations there. Yeah, it's, we, not, it's like, not done anything to help those countries. No, we know why they did it. They did it for government money, which they actually lost a big chunk of it because they um, had an issue with some of the numbers they provided for participation numbers. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like it's not – look, there's a World Cup over there right now and we, we're not playing games in Ireland or Scotland or Wales. So there's just zero reason for them to be broken up at this point. Might as well just go back to be Great Britain. At least as Great Britain, you can market that to everyone, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's also probably an easy way to try and get all of those nations together um, and enjoying their, their rugby league experience. True. And I guess the other thing is too, like, 
if by some miracle one of these countries actually produced a player that was worth playing in that team, um, then they would at least be playing in a higher quality team rather than being surrounded by a bunch of blow-ins. And, you know, my grandfather was a, he drove through Wales once and all that sort of bullshit. Um, I just, I'm so out in the World Cup, and I know it sounds all negative and stuff, but you try sitting there through all of these fucking games, you know? It's difficult. They're not enjoyable. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, what could we do to try and make it more competitive or better? And I don't know. If, if we're going to have the world rankings of the International Rugby League body um, be believable... Mm. Why not have the top? How many teams have we got? Twelve. Why not have those? Was it sixteen teams? 16, sixteen teams at the World Cup. Yeah. Why not have the teams rank one to sixteen in the World Cup instead of team two aren't? So, for example, Serbia is ranked eighth in the world. Malta tenth. Mm. Uh, Netherlands is fourteenth. Italy is seventeenth. Cook Islands are twentieth. Jamaica twenty one. Um. Why don't we change that around a bit so that the teams who are ranked 1-16 to 16 are the ones who are in the World Cup? I'm not saying they're going to be better, but I'm saying if we're going to put any weight into this rating system, if the International Rugby League think this is the be-all and end-all and is worth the, the shit that they printed out on, mm. shouldn't they be the 16 teams in the World Cup? Yeah, it's a good argument. It's, a, it's not any worse than the argument that ends up with what we've got now. You know. Yeah, I mean, it just seems. I mean, in this list, Scotland is fifteenth and Wales are sixteenth. They're the two worst teams out of sixteen. Netherlands rank higher than Scotland and Wales, and they're not in the World Cup. Yeah, but like, who was the World Cup for, right? Who were the world rankings for? And then when you look at the organisation that deals with both of them, who were they organising this part of the sport for? You know, and it's not all supposed to be aimed at the big market nations. You've got to look after the small market nations as well. Yeah. But are we look I don't think we're looking after them. No, the back in twenty seventeen, I think it was, they had the Emerging Nations World Cup. That's a great idea. It needs to get more exposure. Because okay, they yeah. had a lot of the nations that are at the bottom of that list all playing against one another. From memory, there might have been one or two games where a team scored fifty odd points. But the games were thoroughly enjoyable. Obviously, the skill level was down on what we're used to watching the NRL. But they were very enjoyable games. The players gave their all. Um, and a lot of the players, you didn't know who they were because they were all, for the most part, they were domestic players. Mm-hmm. So that actually brings a lot more enjoyment out because you get to see where the, where the game is at domestically. Whereas when you're watching jamaica play at the moment you've got no idea what jamaican rugby league's like because you're just seeing a bunch of people playing for playing in england playing against one another yeah yeah and and look you could probably do a 20 team uh emerging nations world cup if you wanted to and i don't think it would be any more one-sided than what we're seeing now no not at all you can break it all off into tiers you can probably Mm. find a spot where the where the tiers should start and finish but you could do that quite comfortably and put them in groups and just have um, like three different cups. You have your emerging nations, you can have your, your mid-tier nations, and you can have your, your top World Cup. 
think of it like the English domestic rugby league competition, but without without relegations and promotions and shit like that. Mm-hmm. You know, your idea is to improve your ranking. Basically it, but you know, no one gets relegated out of the out of Earth. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you got to be playing in a World Cup somewhere. Yeah, but although you take playing. Although take it as a warning, Wales, you're on the clock. <laughs> you know, the, there's got to be something we can do. I've, I've always been worried about how the uh, the the Elite World Cup is organised, mm-hmm. and always had a lot more interest in how the the teams outside of the World Cup how they're performing, what they're doing. I've always shown a lot more interest in watching their games and, and what they're doing because that's that's where a lot of the um, the growth is and where those areas we need to be marketing and, and working on and trying to help them get better and bigger because a lot of them are, you know, they're excited when someone sends them a football and three pairs of boots or something like that. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. get much better than that. You've got to try and help these out. And And that's my concern is that when you get the head of the International Rugby League saying that, he sees Wales as being the next big thing. Well, he's going to be, at some level, involved in the budget that the International Rugby League has. And so is he going to put money into Wales? Because I don't believe that that's where the money should be going. Um, And as I said, you go by the metrics of it. You know, you go by results and player numbers and elite players and you know, who who is producing all of these things. And when you go by all of that, you know, you can't line up Wales and Tonga whatsoever, you know. So I, I just, that's what concerns me is that we've got this international governing body that is based in Europe, that they have a million meetings all over the world. In, you know, and they, they get everything paid for by themselves. They approve those budgets pretty quickly. But, like, where is their focus? Their focus is on the wrong areas, I believe, because for all the time and effort that they've put into some of these European teams, there's no return. No, and you know that they could have put that same money into nearly any other country. Yeah, other than Australia, New Zealand, and they get a much better return on that that money they've put in. Imagine if if they spent the money just in Fiji, just Cook Islands, PNG. Yeah, yeah, just spend the money, spend the money in in areas where we do get return on investment. Even if they spend that money in America, yeah, Jesus, yeah, it's it. It's so frustrating. It's really frustrating. It's it's especially frustrating when you've watched enough of these World Cups and you see the same teams being beaten by the same score lines over and over again, and it's like, you know. Yeah, why are we bothering with this? Yeah, yeah. Because that's how it's getting at the moment. Why, why do we keep putting ourselves through this all the time? Yeah, and look, if here's the thing that some people don't get through their thick skulls. If rugby league people are watching this World Cup and saying, this sucks, people that aren't rugby league fans are looking at it and saying, this sport sucks, and they're yeah. out. Yeah. You know, hey, I've, some how are you going to get them on side? Exactly. Look, some of the justifications I've seen from people are fucking idiotic. 
as to doing the mental gymnastics as to why this World Cup is the greatest thing ever. You know, I, I can't do that. You've got to live in the reality of the situation is that we're watching a, a tournament that is extremely lopsided. It is not fun to watch. It is not well attended. And we need to change it. There needs to be some sort of change to it. Yeah. I don't know how or what you change, though. It's That's a crazy, um, absurd thing. Yeah. Was was there talk? I, I need confirmation of this. Was there talk that they were trying to suggest that they could get close to a million people all up for this World Cup to attend? Oh, look, I I don't know because I'm completely out on all of their their talk about crowd figures. I I was concerned about their talk on crowd figures months ago when they've started doing the all the tweets about the the tickets are all running out. You better go and buy them. And I I thought that sounds like some bullshit and it ended up being. So I, I don't pay too much attention to their crowd talk. Because um, they haven't quite hit a quarter of a million yet. Yeah. And there's not many games left. <laughs> yeah. The, the, some of the crowds, there's been a couple of crowds where I've turned on the TV and been like, oh, that's not bad. You know, most of them have been, holy shit, where is there, is anybody there? You know, it's been a couple of crowds I thought probably didn't crack a thousand people. Seven of the 24 games thus far have had crowds that went over 10,000. I'm trying to think what they would have been. They would be the two England games. Yep, they England. said that there was Australia beat Scotland in front of 10,000, which is bullshit. The the three England games were the biggest crowd. So oh, three England, yeah. yeah, yeah. England Samoa was forty three thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, England France twenty three thousand six hundred, and England Greece was eighteen thousand seven sixty. We then had Australia Fiji had thirteen thousand. Um, New Zealand Ireland had fourteen thousand. Tonga Papua New Guinea had ten thousand. Australia Scotland had ten thousand apparently. Okay. But uh, Fiji Italy had three thousand six hundred. Samoa Greece, 4,400. <clears throat> France Greece, 4,100. It's, uh, it's we so frustrating. We shouldn't be having crowds this small at, at a genuine World Cup. How have we not generated enough hype about this? Yeah. But if we brought teams from other parts of the world, Andrew, no one would turn up to watch them play. Yeah, because they're... Tripping over themselves at the moment to get to games. <laughs> well, the, the scores would be lopsided. You Maybe if they that. just played the games in the heartland. Hang on, they're doing that already. I know, that's the thing. I had somebody say to me uh, on Twitter, oh, you, do you think that more people would turn up in Mackay to watch this game? It's like, we, we're not playing in the equivalent of Mackay. We're, no, we're but playing you know in the equivalent get, of Parramatta here. You would get similar crowds to what they're getting in Mackay. You probably would, yeah. And that's what's wrong. That is the problem, <laughs> that that's no, the equivalence. You shouldn't be getting the crowd that would attend a game in Mackay to a game that's being played at Hull. The other thing is, I don't know how many games that they've scheduled in St. Helens, but no one turns up to events in St. Helens, apparently. It's really weird. 
Uh, Tonga PNG had 10,000 and Tonga Wales had 7,000. Australia I, had 5,000. Oh Yeah, I call bullshit on some of those crown figures. <laughs> but there's no more St. Helens games coming up. We've got our first game coming up this week at Huddersfield. Well, you know what I say, St. Helens, the home of Wigan Rugby League. <laughs> um, well, that's now that we've got all the good talk out of the way, mm-hmm. we do have four games coming up. Okay. And for the most part, they they should be good games. Fingers bar, crossed. By one of them. Yeah, well, Australia is going to absolutely flog Lebanon. Yeah, which is disappointing because I think Lebanon probably wouldn't go too bad against some of the other teams there. I agree. I agree. Um, England, Papua New Guinea. I mean, I'll, I'm interested in that one because Papua New Guinea could end England's World Cup campaign. Yeah. I, England has ticked every box you could have asked of them, to be fair. But they haven't actually played a, a hard game of rugby league. Samoa were terrible. Um, and then they had two walkover games, basically. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how they turn up. PNG... Look, normally I would say that they would win this game. Um, but I don't know. I haven't been super impressed with PNG. I don't think that they're at their very, very best. And I think that they would need to be to beat England on English soil. I think if this game was PNG, I would be like PNG all the way. PNG is going to flog them. But, it, you know, it's in England, it's in English conditions. And England's going to be up for this one. It's going to be probably the best of the games, I would say. It's looking like it could be, yeah. It's um, it, it's a pretty big game. I, I am excited to see how this one goes. Um, probably you give, you give been playing a very strong ball running game through the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could worry England's middle defence a little bit. But that, that's going to be a genuinely interesting game. Um, New Zealand have got Fiji. Um, expecting New Zealand to win that one, but uh, you don't really know what Fiji you get sometimes. True. And I, I think that the other thing is that New Zealand have been pretty poor. Um, Dylan Brown, I think, should be dropped. He's been terrible in this World Cup. I'd have foreign in Hughes in the halves if I was New Zealand. Um, they just haven't applied themselves so far. Um, Fiji have been a little bit quiet in this World Cup, which is a bit disappointing. They've beaten the teams that they should have beaten, though. Yeah. So we'll see how how that turns out. But New Zealand should win that one. And the last one is Tonga versus Samoa. Oh, I, I just can't tip Samoa. Like No, neither can I. But, I mean, after their humiliation in the first week, Admittedly, they haven't had tough opposition, but they have been dominating the living hell out of the other two teams they played. Tonga haven't really been dominant until they played Cook Islands. Yeah, and then they got Tomalolo back, and he and they just looked like a different team with him out there. Um, I can I can tell you some of the games Samoa has played after that England loss. They've put up big score lines, but they've still played some pretty dumb football at times. Yeah. and I, I just think that I think this is going to be like a lot of games between Tonga and Samoa where you're hoping for that contest that we know it could be, but it doesn't end up being that. And I think that Tao Malolo takes them to a different level. Like, you know, 
Samoa doesn't have a Talmalolo in their side. No one does. No. No one does. Should um, I talk about Jason Talmalolo? I, I think you probably should. Okay. What are your thoughts on Jason Tomalolo? He's the best lock forward in the game's history. In the game's history? History. There's no one you can think of that's better than him? 1895. 1895. That's, no only, that's the time period I'm covering. Now, let no, me... No one from Wales you can think of that was better? No, funnily enough not. No one from Scotland? No Irishman? <laughs> now, let me let me tell you why. Because I've put this to you a little bit before, and you, 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 uh, you've been very sceptical of it. But then I've started laying out the cause, and you can see my point of view. Um, I wouldn't say sceptical. Okay. I've, I've made my point, and that is I am hesitant to call someone the greatest of all time while they're still playing. Okay. That's all it is. I'm not so saying he, they're not. I just like to wait a little bit. Because, you know, you get that recency bias. Remember we used to hear a lot of people talking about how um, Cooper Cronk should be made one of the immortals. Oh, and yeah. then, you know, it's been two or three years since he's retired. No one's talking about that anymore. Yeah. That recency bias carries a fair bit of weight. And once, you know, once you let that get out of the way, people start to be a little bit more realistic. And I, I like to make sure I I don't um, allow that to creep into my head, I guess. I, I try to wait a little bit until that's gone. That's fair enough. And look, I would say to you, be be harsh in criticism of what I'm going to say, because that's what listeners would want to hear, right? Yep. So here's my point of view. He has been he started playing when he was in first grade as a very very young player, so he was ahead of his time as a player. I think he was like 16 years and in like nine months or something like that. Like he was one of the last of the the really young players they allowed to play first grade. Um, was a, a major part in them winning their first premiership. Broke records as a forward for go forward meters. Uh, had, had the football team at the Cowboys built around him to a certain extent. In the worst teams, was still their best player. Okay? Yeah. Um, and it was doing is doing all of this in an, the best era of forwards ever. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, yeah. Internationally, absolutely. Yeah, okay. On top of that, he makes his debut for New Zealand and decides, I'm not going to do that. I want to play for Tonga. And he does it at a time when it wasn't cool. Okay. Yeah. Does it at a time when Tonga really isn't anywhere in terms of rugby league. They've got some really handy first grade players, but it's not like we were, we were thinking that it was going to be what Tonga ended up being. Says, I'm the first. Follow me. Gets other players joining him on his force of personality and he's, he's a brilliant player. Takes Tonga to the point where they beat Australia and we weren't even that shocked. No. Right? Turns them into a powerhouse of international rugby league. One player. What does he do? Well, or what doesn't he do that 
would have made him a poor lock forward in any era of the game. Um, like if you I'm, took Talmalolo and put him in any era of the game, what era would you point to and say, oh yeah, he would he wouldn't have been good in that era. He wouldn't have been the best forward in that era. I think it's more the way he plays the game, which is the way a lot of locks play the game now, is different to the way locks used to play in most other eras. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't wrap their head around. Mm-hmm. Okay, because the majority of people who have been watching rugby league who are around at the moment to commentate on it have been watching it since the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And in those periods, your best lock forwards were... What's the best example? Brad Fiddler. Yeah. Right? They were really good ball players, had good size about them, had good line speed, could do some of that hard work you need to do in the middle, good defenders, um, but were able to fill in at 5-8 if needed. I think yeah. Wade Graham's another good example of someone who would have been a good look, lock forward in the 90s. Well, Brad, Bradley Clyde's probably the gold medal. Yeah, he, he's your gold standard yeah, in that yeah. regard. Um, Ellery Hanley, another one. Yeah. Right? That's kind of what people think a lock forward should always be. And that sort of started about being a really common thing when Johnny Raper came along, in the, especially in the 60s. Mm-hmm. He, he revolutionized the way locks played the game because prior to that, they were basically a skilled uh, second rower, um, even in some cases a skilled prop. Um, it's kind of gone a little bit full circle there. But obviously, the players today have got much bigger engines and do a lot more work than they have done in yesteryear. Not saying yeah. they were poor or anything like that. It's just the game is played faster by stronger players because look, you, they're full-time if, professionals. Of course that's going to happen. Yeah, and look, you take uh, Johnny Raper, put him in today's game with the, the today's training. He's, prob- he's probably the best player in the world. He would, but he'd, he also wouldn't be playing in the forwards. He'd be a 5'8". Yes. That's the thing. Um, and so I think people have got this impression that a, a lock forward is someone who plays with more ball-playing skills and more 5-8 skills than they do as a forward. But that's not the way the game is at the moment. You look at most clubs now, and the play they've got at lock, other than the West Tigers when they're being morons, which is regular, um, your, your lock forward now is basically your most skilled prop forward who has yes. a lot of... Uh, you know, they're capable of playing 80 minutes. They don't always do it, but they're capable of it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that trend did come about with um, Paul Gallen. Okay, because what clubs wanted in the 2000s, when they took the unlimited interchange away and went back to having four interchange, they wanted the lock forward to be a prop forward who you didn't need to substitute. Mm. And that's the one thing Gallen had, all jokes aside. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing Gallen had, throughout all of his career, was he always had that um, ability to play at the full 80 minutes. Another one was Nathan Hindmarsh. Um, and so that's what they wanted their lock to be. We want to have a prop on the field all the time who can pass the ball a little bit. That's not Gallon's forte, but um, a little bit of ball playing skills, a little bit of footwork close to the line, good offload. Um, it can do a lot of basically hit-ups and tackling. That's what we want, but we want, him, we want one of those guys to be there 80 minutes. So that you can have three props on the field, two on the bench, 
just rotating the other two all the time. And that's kind of what it was all about, is just punching holes through the middle all game. Tormalolo comes along. He does all of that, but he's also faster than every other prop on the field. And that never gets fucking mentioned. Mm-hmm. His line speed is insane for a big man. He's he's faster than every other prop on the field. He has quite a large step off both feet, which also doesn't get mentioned too often. Mm-hmm. Um, and his awareness of which shoulder to run at every single time, ridiculous. Um, his uh, ability to keep making post-contact meters the same in the 80th minute as they are in the first minute makes him... And- Unbelievable to stop. Yeah, and, and like in terms of seeing a player just carry the world's best defenders with him, multiple defenders, I can't think of anybody that's ever done it like he has done it before. No, he's he's got the best of a lot of players before him. So he's he's got not – I'm not going to say he's got the footwork of Fiddler. He's got the best footwork of a prop forward since Fiddler, but – very few people have got fitless footwork. That bloke was insane. Yeah. But, but it's still it's still in that elite category of like... That's right. Jason Tamalolo's footwork isn't good for a forward. It's good for a player. Yeah. Um, the, the line speed he has is Brad Clyde. Mm-hmm. Um, the ball running and that low center of gravity, that drive he's got through, the, through, the, through his hips, that's all like... That's Paul Gallon, the best part he had about him. He's just got the best bits of so many good forwards of the last 20, 30 years. That's what makes him elite. He's the evolution of the last 20 years of lock forward play. And part of what lock forwards are nowadays in the modern game has come full circle to what they were in the 30s and 40s, even the 50s. That's natural. The interchange rule changed back in those days, and it's changed in the early 2000s for similar reasons. So, of course, that was going to happen. But, yeah, he is elite. Um Sam Burge is another one. Huge motor. Just like just like Tormalola. He could play the 80 minutes. You could smash him up as much as you want. He'll just keep coming. Mm. It's the same thing. He's just got that every every market of the, the greatness of every player, the greatest thing of greatest asset of all of them that you can think of in the last 20, 30 years. Tormalolo's got most of them. Yeah, and and like I guess the one criticism you could have of him is he doesn't have well, he doesn't show the ball playing ability. No, the one thing that he does do though is, um, Paul Gallen would call for the ball too often. Yeah, and when he did have it, he would basically hang on to it. Yeah, um, which was detrimental. If he called for the ball a lot and got it a lot, that's fine. If he also passed along at the right time, he would have been a lot better forward if he either called for it less or passed it more often. Um, but Tormalolo doesn't call for it that much. Um, he does. He does have a good short passing game. Yeah, I think yeah. the only problem he's got is everybody around him on teams that play with him and against him know how dominant he is. So the problem you get is that when he gets the ball, he can't really throw out too many short passes because he's already going to have three defenders in front of him because that's what it takes to stop him. So yeah, a short pass is pointless because there's already a defender on the, the right-hand side of or the, you know, the outside edge of your forward that's close to you, mm. as well as the three that are in the middle. <laughs> so I, you, I, you've already got players in front of you. I think the other thing is, too, that like if, if you can make as many metres as he does and you can break the line like he does, 
or you can step through the line like he does. Like, they're your main weapons. Yeah. Like, you're going to obviously use them way more than you're going to use other parts of your game. And, yeah, like, I think that if he was playing in a different era, I think he would have that ball-playing ability there. Um, But, I, I, like, for him to be do- as dominant as he is and to make other players around him want to play with him. And I just think that it can't be underestimated what he has done with Tonga. Um, It's, you know, I think we'll look back at it and we'll be like, we didn't appreciate it as much as we should have at the time. And keeping in mind, he's not 30 yet. No, that's right. That's crazy. Yeah. Because if he retired tomorrow, he's had a completely full career. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's nothing he hasn't done. Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know. It's, I would not at all be surprised or upset if he was named as an immortal in you know, five years' time, whenever it is, they, they do the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too sure when it is. It, it wouldn't surprise me or upset me. The only thing that irritates me about the immortal thing is there is always recency bias. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of players from a long time ago who still deserve to be there but haven't been yet. And I'd rather they get put in and named as an immortal before anybody else does first. But that's that's all. It's not anything to do with the players who have been put forward from more recent times. It's just, you know, I want the guys from the past to be, get recognised first. Yeah, I get that. I get that's that. all it is. Um, and for some of them, it could be blokes who played in the 60s and 70s who are still alive. I think they deserve to get that recognition while they're still alive to enjoy it. Yeah. There's nothing worse than giving someone a big recognition, you know, years after they passed away. It feels a bit of an, a hollow gesture at that stage to me. My question for you is who do you think is the best lock forward of, of all time? Of all time. Yeah, it, to me it's tricky because they have evolved and changed so much, probably more than most other positions. Mm. Um, probably that and hooker, hey? Yeah. I don't know, see... One guy who I always, just always loved watching play was Ellery Hanley at lock. Mm-hmm. Um, Fittler, for most of the same reasons I loved Hanley. Mm-hmm. Now, they were two very similar players, um, but both very different um, you know, bodies and athletes to Tormalolo. He's a different thing altogether. There's a lot of what he does about you know revolutionising the positional play that he does that Arthur Beetson did. It's funny you mention Arthur Beetson because I feel I was thinking about him as we started talking about this. He's he's definitely he's not the same player as Arthur Beetson. Arthur Beetson was different. Like Arthur Beetson had a, a lot more of that ball playing ability in him. Oh yeah, I think I think maybe along the the lines of just because he is such a big dude. And he yeah. does have that. He's so light on his feet at the same time. I think that's what it is. So this thing, I, I don't know. The, there's, there's so many variables I take into account when trying to consider things like this. Like for me, I'd probably put Johnny Raper above all the others, only because he revolutionised the role first and changed mm-hmm. the way forwards were playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously other players come along and they, you know, they add a few bricks to that mountain and make make the role a bit better and. Tormalolo's doing the same again. Do you go by the bloke who changes it and changes the way the game's played? Or do you go by the bloke who does it better than anybody else? Um, 
you know, that's where the whole Beaton thing comes in. He yes. came in and he, he was, he played like a fucking five-eighth and he was built like a tank. Yeah. How do you stop that? Fuck's sake. Yeah, um, and it bamboozled people. Yeah, as I said before, and I'm not saying this in a way to um, say they're the same, but the only player we've got that's come along since that I can think of that's you know that has been playing up until now that can give anyone an idea as to what watching Arthur Beatson was like was Andrew Fafita at his peak. Yes. I'm not I'm not at all saying that they're the same player, but the way Fafita played the game, you know, he would instead of being a prop forward that constantly drove through the middle all the time, did the things you expect all props to do. He would sometimes go wide. He'd have the ball out in his hand and he'd offload somewhere. He'd just do that little weird X-factor shit that just comes out of nowhere. But as I said, I'm not saying that Fafita's as good as Beaton. That's just not true. But it's it's those little differences that Fafita gave to a team that that made him more of a threat. Mm-hmm. The fact, the difference is, is that there were a lot of players in, in the, you're playing prop forward, you know, in the modern game, who do little things like that. So he doesn't stand out as much. But when Beaton was come along, all your prop did was hit ups. But it wasn't about, you've got to remember the way the game was played then. It wasn't about getting quick play the balls. You got to keep possession for as long as you wanted when he started. There was no mm. limited tackles. Mm. So it wasn't about trying to go as far as possible and getting offloads away. It was very rugby union-like. Stick it you up and jump, down, you I got keep the, it. Play the ball away, mm-hmm. and then you got up and you kept going, and it was just all about momentum, keeping the ball. You weren't trying to lose it. It was all about holding possession. And he come along, and he's just going, fuck that. <laughs> we're going out here, we're going out here, we're doing a bit of this, doing a bit of that, flick passes here, there, and everywhere, and just points was coming out from everywhere. No one could contain him. He was running on angles when no one else was doing it. Um, it was like putting a player from from today's game and then putting them in a rugby union game from 1920. Mm. That's what Beaton was. No one's been like that. And I think the thing to remember too is like he was called up for that first State of Origin game from Parramatta Reserves. Yeah. And his career is basically over as an elite player. Yeah. He comes into that game, grabs one of his Parramatta teammates, beats the shit out of him <laughs> and leads Queensland to victory. That's yeah. greatness. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I'm, it's not just about what Talmalolo has done on the field, which is unquestionable. Just can't poke any holes in it. But it is the greatness of being able to take a small little island in the Pacific and taking them and saying, they beat Australia a couple of years ago and there was... It was full strength. It, there was nothing you could say that was like, oh, yeah, but but Australia had left half their players at home. Oh, yeah, but Australia, no, no, no. They flat out beat Australia, and it all started with him. Yeah. That's greatness. Yeah, and also the fact that he chose to go to Tonga, and it, it just opened up the door for so many other players to go, I want to play on his side. Yeah. And they followed him en masse. And I'm not talking about just a few players. I'm talking about elite players, many of them at the peak of their game when they could have got a could have been in line for a call up to New Zealand. Fuck that, I'm going to Tonga. He turned Tonga from being, you know, a second tier nation or something like that into one of the prominent sides that other players wanted to play for. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, players turning down the opportunity to earn tens of thousands of dollars per origin match 
to play for Tonga. Yeah. Like that it's As pride in the jumper. Yeah, and it, it started with him. And yeah. I, I just think that that is inc- that's incredible. Like if somebody had said that there was going to be a lock forward that would come along in, in the year 2000, if you said there's going to be a lock forward that will come along, he'll play for Tonga and they will beat Australia within the next 20 years. You'd be like, nah. Yeah. A forward? Seriously? Yeah. Oh, and he's going to be the most dominant forward in the game. You'd you'd just be like, I just don't see that happening. It sounds crazy. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, we could legit wax lyrical about Tom Malolo's greatness for a long period of time. But, yeah, there's... um, as I said, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's if he is the first Tongan to be named an immortal in the NRL, and I don't think we'd have to wait too long. But it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I I can't I can't see how he won't be. Mm. You know, I just can't see how he won't be. It's interesting you bring up. Um, are you all right for time? Yeah, man. All right. Okay, cool. It, it's interesting you bring up. Um, who do, if it's the player that revolutionises a position. If it's if it is it a player that wins the most things and achieves the most things, like when you're looking at the all time great players, what do you rate it as? Like I think the greatest player of all time, and I've said this many times, is Clive Churchill, just based on everything I've read about him, everything he did, and everything that other players said about him at the time. Um, but then I think that in my lifetime, I've seen players that I would rate as the greatest in their position. Like Andrew Johns is, is the best halfback, I think, of all time. Um, I think the best prop forward of all time, for me, it's it's probably between Lazarus and Webke. That you've seen, yeah. That I've yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it probably towards Lazarus, um, just. And, and so it's not like I'm the sort of person that says like, Oh yeah, this, this guy's the best player of all time. Like I, I, I wrote a um, my best team of all time on my website, and it's about fifteen years old. Might even be twenty years old now. And Ken Carney's the best lock of all time, and I did a lot of research on that, you know. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, look, there's you know, there's players after him that revolutionised the position. He played in an era where the hooker position was very, very, very different but I still couldn't go past him. Well, now it's Cameron Smith. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, I mean, that's almost universal, I would suggest, amongst rugby league people that he's the best hooker of all time. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's this thing, Cameron Smith didn't really do anything that revolutionised the role, hmm. but what he did was become so dependable, reliable, mm-hmm. consistent, uh, unbelievable consistency. Winner. Tough. I don't think his toughness ever gets mentioned. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, knew how to win. But his, his best game, if his best game you rated at 100, his very worst game was 93. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, as I said, like sometimes you'll get you'll get great players you can get a highlights reel for and you can watch it for half an hour and then you'll be other players who are absolutely great and there's you can't really find too many highlights for them mm. because... Their greatness isn't about some crazy play they do. It's about how they get their team to win. Um, and he was he was the epitome of the best leader you could have on the field. 
He just yeah. got his team up, no matter who they were, no matter why, where they were, he got them up. And, and that, to me, is real greatness. Well, also, also to me, the thing of real greatness is that it's not about them. And the best example of that was how he retired. He didn't have a swan song. He didn't want celebrations. He didn't want a fucking ticker tape parade. He made everyone think he was going to go around one more year and then just said in the off-season, no, nah, I'm done. Yeah, he didn't need to say anything. He just stopped playing, uh, yeah. and that, it was beautiful. Um, and to, that, to, to make, that to me just typifies him so much so is that it was never ever about him or what he wanted he was always about the team and I dare say the team knew yeah and they yeah. were just letting him play the game with the media the way he wanted because that's what he wanted they didn't want he didn't want them to know he wanted to do it on his terms and they let him have that yeah 100% and, and I think of you know when I think of the greats they they you know, it's like the ultimate winners almost. It's like Darren Lockyer. Yeah. He he was just – he refused to lose some games. It, I've said it about Benji Marshall in some terrible West Tigers teams. There's so many terrible West Tigers teams I watch Benji Marshall on where it was just like, this guy is not going to let these guys lose. No, that's And right. he would literally take them to a win and – you know, that to me is when you achieve greatness. That's yeah. what being the greatest is, is that for almost a force of personality on top of your skill level, because there's plenty of skillful players. But to to be a real great is when you do that extra stuff. That's right. You can, you can lift the players around you to get what you want, um, to get a result. Yeah, and look, you're you're right with Benji Marshall. He was he was very much that. Um, and a lot of people will will say that he shouldn't be an immortal because they think that there was too many games where he wasn't wasn't brilliant. But I don't know. I'd argue that you don't have to be brilliant all the time to be an immortal. I don't think anyone was ever was. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's very different if you're in not a good team. You know, it is very different. Yeah, I, I think it's. It, as much as I love Darren Lockyer, it was rare that he was in a bad football team. Yeah. Um, Benji Marshall was mostly in bad football teams, and he still managed to – he he won impossible games for the West Tigers, and that's not even ta- taking into account what he did in, at uh, international level. Yeah. I mean, what he did at international level was, was genuinely next level. He took that to every level he played at, which is – and then I think a mark of a good half, too, is being able to change your game and being humble enough with who you are to be able to change what you do and get better in the process. And he did exactly that when he went to Brisbane mm-hmm. and returned to the West Tigers. Um, yeah, very difficult for an elite player like him to do that, too. Yeah. And he did it very, very well. I mean, the last year of his career, he's coming off the bench. And really, really important role he was playing coming off the bench, too. Yeah, and... So much so, everyone was still saying, mate, you can go another year. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. He also knew that it's, um, I suppose that was the one criticism we always had of, of Jonathan Thurston. Mm-hmm. It's it's better to retire a year early than a year late. Yeah, that was a rough one. Yeah. That was a real rough one. We haven't seen too many like that. I, I feel like we used to see more of that. But oh, absolutely. In recent years, I think because they players make enough money, yeah. and, and that's not what was motivating Thurston. It was a competitive thing. But 
Um, I think because players make enough money, they're like, look, I, I don't need the money now. I can move on. Um, and so you don't see that last year where a player just as it's weird you can lose it athletically, hey? Yeah, I think I always wondered too. I thought Thurston probably thought that because he'd been injured for so much of the season prior, mm. he'd be able to get that extra year out of his body. Mm-hmm. And his body just went, no, nah, mate, we are done. We told you this last year. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of another player that it was just over like that? It, it, like in terms of they, they had that one extra year and it was like, ooh, it's over. Um, like uh, Morgan at North Queensland again. Yeah, Michael Morgan. Yeah, he was one. Um, yeah, probably, probably Paul Gallon. I think. Yeah. I think for me, he's, he he got moved to being a bench player about a year and a half too late. Yeah. I think after the 2016 grand final, they should have started moving him to being a bench player, bench rotation guy. And they would have got like three genuinely really strong seasons out of him if they had done that. But they kept mm-hmm. just banging his body up, man, in, in the middle there. Turned him into a prop far too late as well. Um, and you could just tell in the last season and a half that uh, he, he, was, he was losing his lateral speed. Yeah, and that that was impacting his game an awful lot, and so that's a large reason why he got moved to the bench. So he didn't have to do as much eighty minute performances anymore. Um, and things were wearing off too, you know. <laughs> this is right. It happens, <laughs> it happens with age. Yeah, you know, you get older, and though he still does boxing, it's remarkable. It is right. Uh, and two fights in one night. Yeah, you know. Do you know what what you've got to have within yourself to do that? Because I reckon yeah. I could find out. <laughs> You're good to bottle that stuff. Ah, I think you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, you know, the only players I can think of where, as younger players where, like, say, a Dane Carlaw, where they're really good and then all of a sudden they're just not. Or Cohen Hess is another one. Oh, yeah. He's disappointing. I think, think though, what Paul Green tried to do with him um, – was try and take him from being that explosive edge player to making him a strong um, prop forward, sort of middle middle of the field runner. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the most part, he kind of got that job done. But it's a very it's a very big change for a lot of players to go from being an edge forward to a middle forward. I don't really like those terms, but that's that's what they were doing. Yeah. Um, as we saw, I mean. Go back to Gallon. I mean, we saw how much it impacted Gallon's play when he went from playing on the on the edge as a second row at the start of his career to be parked in the middle as a as a lock. You're taunting getting me with Paul Gallon. I swear you're taunting with with Paul Gallon, aren't you? <laughs> you can't use Paul Gallon as an example, man. He's the perfect example because he also came along at a time when the lock forwards had this brief period where they went back to being ball players, and they tried to force that on him as well, and. He didn't do it well. Then they went back to being props again. At the same time, they started trying to actually throw the ball around a bit. I just and find then, it really interesting how Paul Gallon was a real middle of the road forward for the first third of his career, and then all of a sudden, and I don't know what it was, he just turned into Superman. Well, you know. Well, let's let's just call it evolution. <laughs> 
Go on, buddy. Um, any other players? I don't know. I suppose a lot of a lot of forwards tend to go through those processes where they they move onto the bench because they you know Andrew Fafita did a bit, but I mean, yeah. it's not until he retired you learnt how many fucking injuries he was carrying, and you go, oh. well, that kind of explains it. <laughs> that was incredible when he listed off all of the surgeries he would need to just to to play next year, and yeah, it was one like more season. Yeah, and it was like it was like five major surgeries. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, and it, it makes you appreciate what he managed to do this these last two years because he'd been playing with all of those that whole time and still like not being at his best, but still being NRL level for the most part. Yeah, and, pl- and doing it like not being a passenger either. Like he yeah, was doing stuff. It's not like the Sharks are struggling for for big men to have in the middle of the field. They've got plenty of them. Yeah. So to be competitive with those young guys and still be able to put put in, despite all those injuries he was carrying, it does show you, I think, how underrated Fafita was for an awful lot of his career. Yeah, and you could see it in that in the last season. I mean, he was he had more strapping on him than I think I've seen him on a plate for a long time. Yeah, it's Nigel Plum. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bloke who had no down. All he was was just brilliant from start to finish. <laughs> He's the all-time greatest forward, in my opinion. Actually, you know what? Tom Alolo dreams he could be as good as Nigel Plum. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. I wonder what Nigel Plum's doing now. Uh, real estate, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of players get into real estate, huh? Yeah, Willie Kahn's in real estate. Yeah, I think Jared McCracken was involved in real estate. Yeah. Jesus. If Nigel Plum come up to you and said, you know, we might be able to, you know, you're trying to buy a house. He says, we'd really like you to bump your price up by an extra $20,000. You go, oh, look, we can't afford it. He says, no, no, no. You really need to increase it. Okay. <laughs> would 30 be better? Look, 30 would be good. Can you get for 40? 45. How's that? <laughs> You'd just be pushing up the whole time just out of fear. Second, he won't stop coming. Yeah. He keeps going. Second scariest guy in rugby league behind Todd Payton. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't piss those guys off. Yeah, he's terrifying, Todd Payton. Imagine having those two in your your second row. We need to do an all-time scary. (laughs) An all-time scary. (laughs) Who who would be the all-time scariest player you've seen? Oh... Mark Mark Guy when the red mist descended. Oh, yeah, that's hard to beat. Amen. Yeah. He wanted to end humans. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you know what? He, oh, I tell you what, when he was fired up, Ian Roberts as well. <laughs> it, it, like, if he wanted you to end your day, it was ending. The thing is, okay, and look, Ian Roberts was a very – he will go down as one of the most underrated forwards when we think back, because he did evolve as a forward. He played he played lock at a time when locks had to be ball players, mm-hmm. transitioned into the back row, um, and then moved into the front row, mm-hmm. when a lot of the front rowers were still, they, um, you know, he was playing front row when you had a lot of forwards were Martin Bella, Shane Webke, Glenn Rezzer. So they were shorter, stockier guys. He was still this tall, rangy guy. He built very similar to Paul Sirenen. Yeah, so Paul yeah. Serena moved into the front row as well at the end, and that's what kind of made them prolong their careers because 
with a lot of props in the in the nineties when you had to tackle them, you just went low because they were low to the ground. They were shorter guys. Mm-hmm. You couldn't go low and tackle Ian Roberts or Paul Sheeran around the waist because they just destroy you with leg power. <laughs> you had to try and stand up to them toe to toe and tackle them, and then they've got all this muscle mass across their shoulders that you just can't stop them. Yeah, I think uh, the middle. Paul Harrigan is another dude like that. He was yeah. he was a little bit like a couple of years after those guys, not too many years, but just a couple. But yep. he was like he was he showed that evolution as well, where he's this tall guy, big frame, moved very well, but was a four, he was a front rower, you know. Yeah. He started off in the back row as well. That's right. And in, in that Newcastle side, they had almost traditional older front rowers when he come in. He was this tall, rangy back rower. Um, and yeah, that evolution of players. It's funny when with Ian Roberts, like you can look at the football cards from his first few years, and he stands out as something different from all the other forwards. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, he he comes across. I think um, yeah, Paul Sirenen and Mark Guy are very similar. Those mm. three players because mm. they all played at lock. They all had good ball skills. Sirenen didn't play at lock that much, to be honest, because he I mean he had Wayne Pearce there most of the time. But he could play it there, but he played a lot in the second row on the edge and transitioned into the front row at a time when that wasn't a common thing in the 90s for second rows to turn to the props and yeah. be successful at both. Yeah. Um, i tell you another dude who was like that, um, Paul Dunn. Yeah. Played for the, the Bulldogs. Yeah. And then I think he, play, he played for – he ended up playing for Parramatta after that, That's I think. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, he well, was he, a little bit like that. He got he got better as a prop though. Yeah, he did. He did. But the same sort of like the the same sort of evolution of the front row. He was like because he would have played like you look at the the prop forwards. He come in alongside, and then he ends up being the prop forward. It's a, just a completely different thing. Yeah, they're all built differently by the yeah. by the mid nineties. A lot of the props become because the game got so much faster, mm. um, and then you had the ten meter rule on top of it. It meant that your props had to do more and more running. I'm sure, a lot more of it was uncontested running because you were running five meters before you hit the defensive line, whereas prior to that it was two meters. Mm. So there was a lot more uncontested running. So the cardio had to be higher. So you couldn't have these what you used to have in the seventies and eighties. These sort of more rotund, fatty sort of blokes. You had to yeah. be fit and Guys like, yeah, Sirenen, uh Roberts. John they, Cartwright was another one. Yep. Guy, you had to be fit. Mm. They brought that fitness with them. Um, and that that was the next evolution of the whole front row forward thing. Yeah, if you think about within 10 years, you go from like a, a Sam Bacco to a Paul Harrigan. Yeah. Like that, that shows it there. And that's only 10 years. That's like, right. if you go back 10 years, rugby league forward pretty much looks the same now. Yeah. That what it does today. That's right. It's, it's a very quick evolution. Yeah. It's, um, it's fascinating time, yeah, Ian Roberts, man. The other thing about Ian Roberts, that you do obviously didn't see much, but um, if if he got into a scuffle with someone, uh, he only needed one hit. <laughs> yeah. If he I, got one punch in, you didn't get one in. <laughs> Just always remember Wendell Saylor accidentally pushing him and just just wilting <laughs> when when he put when he pushes him and puts his head up and then the play goes on and the camera goes back and it's just Ian Roberts screaming in his face and poor Wendell just wilting. 
just just trying to fade away. He's like, he's, he's, I'll never um, forget that. Like Homer going back into the hedge. Yeah, yeah, pretty. I'm not here. I'm not here. <laughs> the problem was Ian Roberts had him by his, like the scruff of his thing. He wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, man. I think there's a great story, too, um, you know, in hindsight, when Gary Jack got into a fight with uh, Ian Roberts in the mm. very early 90s, mm. and Roberts hit him once, and Gary Jack lost two, three teeth. Mm. So after he got punched, Roberts just went back. They got separated while Gary Jack was looking for his teeth, and he just tucked them into his sock and continued playing the game. And then after the game, he took them... To- Took him into the dentist and I went, yeah, we can't do much with these. Yeah. <laughs> but did he sue him for that? He did, yeah. Yeah. Because I think it might have been, I can't remember the incident, but I think it might have been a case of mistaken identity. Oh, really? Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> that happens in rugby league sometimes. No. Gary Jackson, a lovely bloke. He didn't deserve that. Benny Livestock. <laughs> who, yeah, who are some of the other scary players? Like, um... I tell you what, you know, you know, one I was told about, um, yeah, you know, I'm not gonna, not gonna shock anyone here. Tommy Rodonigus, who would just go and smash Peter Sterling, just decide yeah. to ruin Peter Sterling's life anytime they played. Yeah, um, he'd be scary to play against. Yeah, he played entirely with, um, just with so much passion and emotion. Mm. Uh, remarkable. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up one who never played any rep football of note. Okay. He's scary because of what he did um, outside of rugby league, especially after his career ended in rugby league. And that's, oh jeez. That's uh, Barney Dalton. Okay. He was a, a five eight slash centre for the Roosters in the very early years of the game. Um, left rugby league in the mid just after World War One, or mm-hmm. during World War One, mm-hmm. and joined up with all the Razor Gangs in Sydney. Oh, really? Yeah, he died in one of the Razor Gang Wars. Oh, jeez. Hmm. Um, just chuck that in there. Yeah, just... Put old Slasher in there at 5'8". I guess any of the forwards from, like, the 70s. Just any of them. Yeah. Like, all of them. That was a brutal time in the game. Oh, fuck, man. Cliff Watson? What's you know the... What? Uh, the pommy dude, the big yeah, pommy dude. Uh, the Sharks, tough as fuck, man. He bashed anyone he, he wanted to. Um, the only person he was scared off was his wife. <laughs> I found a news, newspaper report one day, and he broke his jaw in a fight, I think it was. Mm. And um, he was <laughs> he was asked after the game, like, is there anything you want us to do? He says, someone will call my wife and tell her I won't be home for dinner, otherwise she'll get the shits at me. <laughs> Jeez, oh, <laughs> I'm going to be at hospital. Imagine breaking your jaw in the seventies. I bet it wasn't. It wasn't like now you break your jaw and you're like, okay, I'm going to get some really good treatment here. Yeah. And uh, they're going to they've got scanners. They're going to make sure. It, back then, I bet they were just like bit of sticky tape. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. You know that one. They they tape up someone with a blood nose. Yeah. It would have been like that back then. Just put some 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 masking tape around the top of your head and just keep your jaw in place. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to be able to eat for eight months. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We've got your straw. <laughs> yeah. Just have some soup. You'll be fine. 
Man. <laughs> like, then that that would have only been an investment after you know, Johnny Sattler broke his jaw and they just left him stay on the field with no treatment. <laughs> left him, yeah. Just left him running around with his jaw hanging down. If anyone's seen um, The Mummy Returns, as the as the mummy in that movie is almost fully regenerated, the last part of him that gets regenerated is his broken jaw hanging down. That's kind of Johnny Sattler's jaw in the grand final. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a, I, I, you will have seen it, but uh, McCarthy, he was talking about that game. And he didn't know what had happened, and he, he he said to John Sattler, like, "What's the deal?" You know, and John Sattler, he said he he went to open his mouth, and his jaw just fell down. There's a plonk. And he said, "Shit!" I he, I said, "You're gonna have to hold me up because I'm gonna faint just looking yeah. at you." <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. That's that's like next level. That's next level. Yeah, that was crazy. That was. Yeah. Um, good thing is we can watch that game. Yeah, we should I'm watch it. Watch we that. should do that in the off season. Hey, sit down and watch that match. We've been meaning to do that for a while. We can get into that. Yeah, there was wasn't there was a game we we started watching the fifty the fifty six grand final. I think it's the first one they got on there. Yeah. No, sixty six. Sorry, sixty six grand final. Balmain versus St George. Mm-hmm. That's when we started watching. And some bloke just came out with a medic's case on there, and inside he just had a wet sponge. That's right, yeah. He, he looked like if somebody said, okay, get a get a male nurse's uniform from the 60s and just pretend you know what you're doing. Um, and I'll, that... just, I'll just wipe the AIDS out of your eyes. <laughs> your cancer's gone. Typhoid's gone. Hang on, there's a little bit of syphilis over there. Just move, wipe, wipe that off. There we go. We've got rid of everything. Get, you get a major knee injury back then, and they're just like, look, your knee looks like it's in the right place. Get up and play on. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. Um, yeah, crazy times. Mm. We'll, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, 100%. We'll uh, maybe we'll do call that We'll over. call them all soft, too. Hey? Oh, we'll yeah. call them all soft. <laughs> yeah, we'll be like, no, now, like those players. Should just walk that one off. <laughs> <laughs> Let's <laughs> see Clive Churchill binding his broken arm in a book binder. Yeah, the ruler is a splint. Like, whatever. Kicking a goal from Solo going, yeah, you're just fucking hamming that up for the cameras, aren't you? Oh, they'd, they'd have to be. I'm trying to think. Would there be full games of Clive Churchill? I don't think so. Unless there's – we might be able to find a few tests or something like that. Yeah, that'd be about it, hey? Yeah, there wouldn't be many on there. Because it would be interesting to watch him play a full game of footy and just – like line it up with how modern fullback plays. I bet there's a lot in there that uh, it is super familiar to what yeah. we see today. So if him was more about, um, yeah, I suppose his positional play. Yeah, I, I think that he's one of those players that if you put him, if you put him in a World Cup game on the weekend, I think it would be seamless. Even as a, a slight player, I, I think that having not even looked at the game evolve. Um, I think it, it, the high kicks would be different for him just because the synthetic ball is easier to kick and that sort of stuff. But I also think he'd probably get the synthetic ball and say, like, why does anyone ever drop this? Yeah, that's right. You know, so I, I think that he would walk straight in. Mate. It just made me think. I'd, I'd, if there was one World Cup tournament I'd, from the past I'd love to watch every game, what would it be? The one from 1954. Yeah, just so many great players in there. You get yes. to see 
Clive Churchill paint gum up against Pig or Burr. Mm. Yes, please. I'll have yeah. that. That would be awesome, hey? Just uh, two blokes who revolutionised the game in their re- you know respective countries at their absolute peaks. Ah, oh, man, we're so lucky to follow a sport where where we've got those moments. Here. And that's the thing that gets me about this World Cup. Like, this World Cup hasn't had that, you know? This World no. Cup hasn't had that moment or that. Like, tell, look, Tal Malolo might be that, that player where you say, and then he come into the team and the World Cup changed and they won the World Cup. That yeah. could be it. Well, if they go on and win. Yeah. It'd be good. I mean, look, it'd be good for rugby league if someone other than Australia, England, or New Zealand wins. Yeah, I, I agree. I th- look, I think at the moment, I would say, I would say Australia is going to be super hard to beat. Yeah, and and then after that, New Zealand has to get their their shit together. But I think the the one to worry about is Tonga. If Tonga plays like if Tonga. We've seen it. They've got the they've got the runs on the board. They know they yeah. can do it, and that's the big thing. Yeah, well, well, let's see. It'd be good to see, say, like Tonga versus Papua New Guinea in the final. That would be so cool, eh? I'd be in for that. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. Can you imagine, like, you give all of those players the chance, and it's like this is the World Cup. It's a good chance to win it. Can you imagine how hard they would rip into that game? Oh yeah. Oh. Oh yeah, that would be the the greatest World Cup ever. It might it'd be like up there with the most brutal final. Yeah, but it'd be it'd be legal brutal. That's the thing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Uh, we can only hope. We can only hope. Alrighty, well, let's wrap this one up. Yep. Um, thanks for tuning, everyone. Um. Make sure you check us out on the socials on Instagram and Twitter at Virgo Freak Pod. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. So check us out on all of those as well. Make sure you uh, leave us a comment on your social on your uh, podcast listening app. That's the one. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we'll catch you all next time.